0: CHAPTER TWENTY-two of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sherry Morrow. PERILS in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. CHAPTER TWENTY-two It was a Sunday evening late in December about nine months after the departure of george rivers and his friend from umtongo george who wore a suit of clerical black had just returned from a long ride to spillman's lay where he had passed the day he was now a deacon having been ordained by the bishop of pretoria a month or two previously the weather was delicious but very warm and george was glad to sit down by his friend's side in a charming little summer-house which they had built under the shade of a tall eucalyptus planted by Mr. Rogers when he first came to the Transvaal, forty years before. "'Well, George, what sort of a congregation had you?' inquired Margetts. "'And how did you get on with your sermon?' "'I had a very good congregation,' was the reply. "'The farmer who bought Spillman's Vlay vale of my stepfather's, an Englishman, an immigrant from a Berkshire village. He and his wife and grown-up children were all there, and so were nearly all the farm servants whom he had brought with him. He told me very earnestly how it delighted him to hear the church service. It was like a voice from old England, he said, and he couldn't tell me how glad they all were that a clergyman would come over from Unvillosa every alternate Sunday now instead of once a month. And, I dare say, when he was in Berkshire, he didn't think much of the church service, suggested Margetts. No, he often didn't go, he told me, and cared very little for it when he did, and it was the same with his laborers. They seldom miss a service here. Well, it is to be hoped that they will not come to neglect it again. Now it is once more within their reach. But how about the native service, asked Reggie. Could you get on with that? I am afraid I made a good many blunders, said Rivers, especially in the sermon. However, nothing but practice will set that right. You think an interpreter doesn't answer? No, I am pretty sure it doesn't. You know what Lambert told us about his interpreter when he first went to preach to the Kaffirs in Nisna? No, I didn't hear that story. Lambert said he was puzzled how to address them, when it occurred to him that Children of the Force was a title that would be sure to take their fancy, and he accordingly began his discourse to them in that way. He thought he had done it rather well, until one of his friends who had heard him, and who was a good Kaffir scholar, told him that the interpreter had rendered his children of the forest as little men of big sticks. That story determined me never, anyhow, to employ an interpreter. Reggie laughed. I think you are right, he said, and your kaffir certainly improves. By the by, did you see Hardy? His house is only seven or eight miles off from Spillman's Vlade, and I am told he goes over when there is a service there. I believe he does, but he was not there today. Mr. Bacon told me he had gone to Durban, when about a week ago. Indeed. Do you know what took him there? I fancy he was sent for to make some report of the state of things in his neighborhood. You know he now holds an official position of some importance. Yes, which you might have had if you had liked it, George. He has the credit of having given them warning at work's drift in time to prepare themselves for the defense of the place. But it was you who brought them that information. I did not want the post, Reggie, and, if I had, Hardy was the person really entitled to it. I did not know the way from Islamwana to Rourke's Drift, and could not have found it. And, to say the truth, I should not have thought of the garrison at Rourke's Drift if he had not reminded me of it. No, he fully deserves his appointment, and I am heartily glad he got it. But I believe when he gets to Durban, he will warn the government that the Transvaal is not merely in a condition of discontent and disloyalty, but on the verge of an armed outbreak. Do you think it goes so far as that, George? An armed outbreak means a war with England, remember. What possible hope can they have in succeeding in that? No reasonable hope, of course. The hundredth part of England's power would be enough to crush them. I don't suppose the Boers could bring five thousand men into the field, and England could easily send five times that number, or twenty times that number if she chose. The Boers have but little discipline or material of war, or knowledge of strategy. England is a first-rate power in all those respects. It would be an absolute madness for the Transvaal to go to war with England, as it would be for a terrier dog to provoke a lion to fight with it. But, however great the madness, it does not follow that they will not do it. What can induce them? Their profound ignorance of the relative strength of the two countries. I was talking with the Boer of some intelligence who, I found, really believed that Holland was one of the great powers in Europe, the equal, if not the superior, of England. He knew nothing of history, apparently, since the times of Van Tromp and Admiral Blake. He fancied Islamwana had only been redeemed by a desperate and exhausting effort, which would have made it impossible for us to engage in any other war for a generation to come. The accidental circumstance that a quantity of newly coined money had been sent out here to pay the troops was enough to convince him that england was bankrupt and driven to expend his last guinea people who know no more than that of the true state of things may perpetuate any act of folly no doubt george and i dare say also they argued that the disasters of vislam and Intombe proved that the english were not so formidable in the field as their own troops had always been they had repeatedly fought these Zulus, remember and always with complete success Exactly. No doubt they did, and do so, argue. They were always on their guard, and we were taken off ours, and that made all the difference. But though the Dutch might practice their rude tactics with success on the natives, they will hardly get the English to approach them and be shot down after the same fashion. That is reckoning rather too much on even an Englishman's contempt for his enemy. But they mean mischief, these Boers. They are flocking down this way from all parts of the Transvaal. Whom do you think I saw today, of all people in the world? I don't know, indeed. Not old Kransberg, I suppose. Not old Kransberg, but I did meet the young one, our friend Rudolph. What should bring him here, or Gottlob Lisberg, or Hans Stockmar, or Julius Vanderbilt, or half a dozen other fellows from near Zierust, whom I have seen about in the course of the last week, unless what they say is true and they are going to rebel against the English government. It looks like it, I'm afraid. But about Rudolf Kranzberg. Did you come to speech of him? How did he receive you? I didn't come to speech of him, as he didn't say a single word. He received me as Dito did Aeneas in the Infernal Regions. What? He bears us some grudge for the trick played on him at Ontongo? I'm not at all sure that he realizes the fact that any trick was played on him. From what Lisberg told me, Lisberg is very intimate with him, you know. He fancies the explosion was the work of the evil one, and that we are in league with him. You know Tyrese wrote us word that he had never turned up at Omtongo again. My mother thought it very odd, but she apparently still believes he is a suitor for Tyrese's hand. I suppose Theresa herself has a pretty shrewd suspicion of the truth. I suppose she has, but if she guessed that Rudolph had taken up that notion, she would be quite content to let him entertain it. But the upshot, I fancy, is that Rudolph owes us one, and will pay it if he has the opportunity. He is as thorough a specimen of the sullen boar as I know, and your sullen boar is not a pleasant article. But Reggie, he added, after a few minutes' silence, there is a matter which I have once or twice wished to speak to you about, but have always put it off. I have a fancy that you really do care for Teresa, notwithstanding your chaff about her we are very old friends and out here cut off from the rest of the world we are like brothers i wish you would tell me the plain truth about this matter well old fellow what is the use of telling it i don't see how anyone can live as long as i did in your sister's society and not care for her she is simply the sweetest and most beautiful creature i have ever seen but where is the good of my saying this george i can't ask her to marry me i have nothing but a precarious allowance of a hundred pounds a year and I am not likely to have anything more, unless I can make it myself out here. But if Teresa likes you... I don't know she does, Broke in Margetts. I have fancied once or twice that she does, but most likely it was all fancy. I am only saying, if she does like you, she will have something. Umtongo belongs to my mother, not to Mr. Manson. But Umtonga will come to you, George, said Margetts, surprised. I should not want it. I shall never marry... This life here suits me much better than such a farm as Umtongo, though, no doubt, that is a very good farm. No doubt, assented his friend. I see what you mean, and I believe I understand you when you say you won't marry. But, in the first place, I hope you're mistaken there. And, in the next, supposing everything else arranged as you wish, Tyresa and I could never deprive you of your inheritance no george i mean to stay here and work as i am doing now i shall never make a parson i'm not cut out for that but i think i shall do well enough at farming and teaching and by the by if your sister doesn't marry a bore, i may be in a position to ask her be it so reggie i believe you are right and this had better not be mentioned again and here in good time comes mr rogers he is back from newcastle earlier than i had expected mr rogers whose acquaintance the reader made in the first chapter of the story was an extremely worthy man it would have been well for both england and south africa if there had been more like him left an orphan when quite young and possessed of a considerable fortune he had always disliked the ordinary round of english social life and desired the freer air and habits of a new country as soon as he could overcome the reluctance of his guardian to the steppe he had visited the colonies and chosen out among them the border country of Natal and the Transvaal. There he had bought a large farm, large even for farms in that country, and built two or three different stations on various parts of it. Spillman's Fley and Ryland's were two of these, and here he placed men whose views accorded with his own. Ludwig Manson, though a Dutchman, had been one of these, and it was with considerable regret that he heard, soon after his arrival in England, of mrs manson's succession to her uncle's property near xerist and their removal thither notwithstanding his affection for colonial life he was an englishman to the backbone and the blunders made by colonial secretaries one after another sorely disturbed him in particular the gigantic mistake of the annexation of the transvaal so troubled him that he made an expedition to england in the hope of persuading the government to reconsider that disastrous measure there was no doubt it was for the moment advantageous to the boers as a sentence of penal servitude would be less unwelcome to a convicted prisoner than a sentence of death but when the danger of being hanged had passed away it was not likely that penal servitude would be cheerfully accepted foreseeing the inevitable mischief that would ensue mr rogers had urged the repeal or at all events some modification of the decree but the new government could not be induced to pay any heed to South African matters, being completely absorbed by domestic and continental questions, and Mr. Rogers went back to Umbellosa to do the best he could under the circumstances of the case. On the present occasion, he had not returned from Newcastle, whither he had gone, as was his practice to help in the church services on a Sunday, in the happiest frame of mind. Everywhere he saw the plainest indications of the mischief he had anticipated newcastle was full of Boers who had come in from the more distant parts of the transvaal and their feelings and intentions could not be mistaken not only was a revolt designed but it was close at hand he greeted george and reggie with his usual kindness but his depression and vexation were evident did you know that your stepfather and mother as well as your sister were on their way here he asked addressing rivers no sir i had no idea of it I haven't had a letter for the last fortnight, and Tyresa, from whom I heard three weeks ago, said nothing of any such intention. No, I imagine it must have been a hasty thought, but they are certainly on their way to Newcastle, and will arrive in a day or two at furtherest. Who told you of it, sir? asked George. Perhaps it is some mistake. No, that can hardly be. It was Henrik van der Heiden who informed me. I met him in the street at Newcastle, where he arrived two days ago. Manson, with his wife and daughter, were to follow him very shortly. Miss Vander Heiden is to travel in their company. Your brother thought it better. "'What are all the ladies coming for?' inquired Reggie. "'They are not going to fight the English, anyhow.' "'No,' said Mr. Rogers. "'But it may not be safe for them to stay behind. Nearly all the able-bodied men among the Boers will take part in the Rising. The Kaffirs and hottentots would have it their own way, and they might insult or injure the white woman.' I think vanderhagen and your stepfather too, George, are quite right to bring their ladies with them. I suppose vanderhagen is very hot about this, suggested Rivers. Yes, he is determined enough, and he is a dangerous opponent to the English. He is a good officer, especially he understands his countrymen's mode of fighting and knows from experience what are the faults into which our officers are likely to fall. And he is a desperate man into the bargain. How so, sir? I do not understand you. Don't you know the story of the girl who was killed by the Zulus not long before the Battle of Islamwana? Yes, I heard something about it, I believe, from Mr. Bailin or Hardy, I don't remember which. Some female relative of his was killed in a very brutal manner, but they are always brutal, these Zulus. It was too sad a matter to be much spoken about. The lady, Lisa Van Cortland, had been engaged to him for some years, and he is said to have been greatly attached to her. She had been murdered just before he came up, and the sight of her mangled corpse drove him, they said, almost mad. It wasn't merely for the purpose of avenging her death that he enlisted in our army, at least so it is thought. He wanted poor fellow to get knocked on the head himself. Well, that explains what I couldn't understand before, said Margetts. Why he was so terribly vexed when it was settled that he was to remain at work's drift. He was for a time almost beside himself and that, too, may account for his desperate exposure of himself during that night of the encounter with the Zulu's added rivers. I never saw a man so utterly insensible to danger. He hardly seemed to rejoice the next morning at his escape, poor fellow. He has had a hard lot in life. Well, I agree with you, Mr. Rogers. I have no doubt he will fight desperately enough in this outbreak, if it really is going to take place. That I am afraid there is no doubt of. Vander told me as much. He wanted to know whether you and Margetts meant to volunteer again to serve in the English Army. If you did, he said, you should leave the Transvaal immediately, or you might be arrested. He offered to give you a pass which would carry you across the frontier. It was very kind and generous. What did you tell him, sir? asked Rivers. Oh, I said that you were now in orders, and, of course, would not think of fighting. As for you, Mr. Margetts... I said I did not know what you might do, but I would ask you and let him know if you required his help. I am obliged to him, said Marget, but I have no idea of volunteering again. I consider this to be quite a different matter from the Zulu war, where it was a question whether barbarous or lawless cruelty should be put down. Unless I am myself interfered with, I shall not interfere in this business. I am glad to hear you say so, said mr Rogers. Then we shall all remain quietly here. I shall invite the Mansons to come and stay at Dykman's Hollow, and I think they will come. It will be quieter and more comfortable for them than Utrecht or Newcastle, which are overcrowded. I have no doubt Van der Heiden, who has a high command, will be able to secure us from molestation. Mr. Rogers was not disappointed in either expectation. In a few days Mrs. Manson and Tyrese arrived while Ludwig joined the Assembled Council of Boers, which was now sitting at Heidelberg, exerting himself to prevent the rising, which was evidently on a point of taking place. Simultaneously with the appearance of the ladies came the note from van der Heyden, endorsing a protection from Pretorius for all the inmates of Mr. Rogers' household. Not long after the standard of rebellion was openly displayed, and Ludwig joined his family at the hollow the Boers in all parts of the transvaal now took the field with their wesley richard rifles and all through the transvaal the english were obliged to fly for refuge to towns or villages where they were besieged by the Boers. resolved not to provoke the animosity or even the distrust of his neighbours mr rogers kept himself and all his employees within the bounds of his own domain not even sending a letter or message to newcastle lest it might be supposed to have some political purpose he advised his guests to also observe the same prudent demeanour no doubt mynheer manson was a dutchman and one very generally respected but his wife and stepdaughter were english and they were the guests of an englishman and at this time national feeling as it might be termed ran so high that the merest trifle might be enough to cause a general outbreak the mansons would have had no inclination to act otherwise than as he advised even if their sense of what was due to him as their host had not forbade them to do so. They regarded the strife that was in progress as a vexation and a calamity, and whatever might be the issue of it, they were anxious to see an input to it. But the ladies felt the time hang heavily on their hands, and when one day had been expended on a visit to George and Reggie's cottage and garden, and an inspection of their farmyard and stock, and another to the church and school where he ministered and taught, they were at a loss of how to employ themselves. Until their host, by a happy inspiration, one day late in January, suggested a visit to Coleman's Cop, a most picturesque spot on the very edge of Mr. Rogers' estate, from which a wide prospect might be obtained of that part of the Orange Free State known as Harris Smith. The road from Bloemfontein to Newcastle ran close beside it, and was visible for a long distance from the summit of the Cop although the latter was so thickly wooded as to screen any visitors to it from being seen themselves by passing travellers to this spot it was agreed that an expedition should be made on the following day and the whole party inclusive of mr rogers who acted as guide set out after breakfast on horses and mules having sent some kaffirs on before them to make the needful preparations coleman's cop was situated on one of the spurs of the drakenbergs not ascending so high as to be bleak and chill yet high enough to command a magnificent view of the landscape beneath and there are few countries in the world in which so vast a panorama is visible from the higher lands as in the orange-free state it is not indeed an unbroken level like the low country of the netherlands being continually varied by hill and ridge but these hardly anywhere rise to any considerable height so that from the slopes of the drakenberg the eye may range in every direction until the horizon line melts into the distance it is a fertile and picturesque territory watered by noble rivers whose banks for the most part are fringed with foliage rich with cornlands and fruit orchards and pastures where sheep and oxen and horses were bred abundantly the land on that side of the drakenbergs being considerably more elevated than on that of natal the climate is cooler and more agreeable to european residents a general cry of admiration broke from the visitors as they caught sight of it, and sitting down on the trunk of a fallen tree they proceeded, more leisurely, to examine its beauties. "'Well, sir, the Dutch have not much to complain of here at all events,' observed Reggie, after a lengthened survey of the scene. "'I should have thought for my part that they might have been very thankful to the English for driving them here.' "'Well, so they might,' Margots remarked Mr. Rogers.' if they had thought that the English had been anxious to find out pleasant quarters for them. But I am afraid the English thought of one thing only. That was clearing them out of their old abodes. Yes, he resumed. The Dutchman has made himself comfortable enough here, if John Bull will only leave him alone. But that John Bull is too philanthropic to do. Hey, Manson, there is no talk of annexing the Free State, is there? asked old Ludwig with a smile. Why, no, Ludwig. The annexation of the other hadn't proved an encouraging experiment, or I think it likely that it would have been proposed. Well, sir, observed George, that annexation took place with the free consent of the Boers, and it was designed in kindness to them. Was it returned, Mr. Rogers? I have my doubts about that latter. No doubt the Boers agreed to it, or rather didn't object to it at the time, but it was very much like pulling a drowning man out of the water, on condition of his being your bondservant forevermore. He would agree rather than be drowned, but I doubt whether you could call it his free consent. It was rather his forced consent, to my mind. What would you have had England do, sir? asked Reggie. Help the Transvaal out of its difficulties, without insisting on annexation, answered Mr. Rogers. The policy would have been as wide as as it would have been kind, and you would have given them their independence back when they asked for it after the Zulu War, I suppose, said Marquette's. Would you give it to them now? I should certainly have given it on the occasion you name, when they had asked for it. It had then become clear that they did not really desire the annexation, and the only reasonable ground there could have been for it was shown by that request not to exist. I think compliance would have been as wise as it would have been just, and would have gone far to smooth away all difficulties. It is, of course, a very different thing now england cannot give to armed menace what she refused to give to peaceful entreaty compliance would have been worse than the previous refusal well sir urged margetts no one to be sure could think that de boers would ever really get the upper hand in a regular war with england i speak with all possible respect to mr manson but that is surely impossible no one who understands the strength and resources of the two countries could think it possible returned mr rogers but the Boers possess very little information on the subject, and the colored rays is still less. They would all think that England yielded now, because her weakness, not her magnanimity, obliged her. But I still trust there will be no war. Enough of this. What is it you have been looking at so intently, Tyresa, for the last ten minutes? I think it is a man on horseback, said Miss Rivers, but the object is so far off that I cannot distinguish what it is. She pointed as she spoke to a black speck on the road that led from Winburg to Newcastle, which was moving towards them. They all watched it for several minutes, and then Mr. Manson said, You have a long sight, Theresa. It is a horseman, and he is riding fast. He will pass almost close to us. It is an English soldier, or a man who has been one, exclaimed Rivers presently. There is no mistaking his seat on horseback. The rider continued to approach until he arrived almost immediately under the spot where they were sitting. Then George and Reggie started up, simultaneously exclaiming, It is hardy, I declare. Let us go down and speak to him. End of chapter 22 Recorded by Sherry Morrow